Uh, welcome to the first Douglas Burden uh, Marconi lecture. Uh, the lecture is, uh, you're very welcome, and it's great to see the, 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 the room so full. The lecture is the completing component in a, in a vision, a vision for the project of bringing the Marconi uh, collection and archive to Oxford. So it's with a sense of achievement that we, that we meet here uh, this evening, but it's also with a sense of sadness, um, because the author of the vision and the pursuer of the vision, Gordon Bassey, uh, can't be with us. So there's very definitely a, an empty chair uh, in, in, in our gathering. Um, the, uh, the project then was to bring the archive, to make it available, to, to encourage research, and now tonight to disseminate the research. And, and that was very much the complete uh, picture that, that Gordon had projected for uh, what we were about. So, um, the, the, we, the Museum of the History of Science and the, and the Bodleian owe Gordon a great uh, debt of uh, gratitude for uh, his determination and for his foresight and vision in, in, in uh, bringing this project to its fulfillment. Uh, and in a sense, it comes to its fulfillment this evening. So, Richard Ovenden, uh, keeper of uh, special collections at the Bodleian, uh, before he introduces our speaker for this evening, is going to express that gratitude to tell us something about uh, how this came about, uh, how the uh, Warconi uh, archive and collection came to Oxford, to the museum, and to uh, the library, and to express our deep gratitude to Gordon for this achievement. Thank you very much, Jim. And I'd just like to add my welcome to you all uh, this evening. Can, can you hear me? Yeah, good. Um, so, before I introduce our current uh, Douglas Byrne Marconi Fellow and our speaker for this evening, I should like to say uh, a few words uh, on behalf of both the Bodleian and the Museum of the History of Science uh, to honour the memory of Gordon Bussey, who died in January of this year and who was the prime mover, as uh, Jim has mentioned, in establishing both the fellowship that we are here to celebrate and indeed in bringing the Marconi collection to Oxford. I'd only been at the Bodleian for about six months when the telephone rang late one cold, dark December evening in 2003. And a person I'd never come across before um, told me over the other end of the telephone, quite out of the blue, that he felt that we should acquire the archive of a major multinational corporation, very uh, famous household name, uh, known as Marconi, um, which was currently at risk of dispersal and destruction, and that he could help us do it and it wouldn't cost us a penny. <laughs> he also mentioned that the archive was both a vast um, accumulation of papers and highly important um, uh, museum objects and that we should talk to our neighbours, um, the Museum of the History of Science next door, to see if we could progress the matter jointly with them. Major archives of this sort don't normally present themselves in this way, I have to tell you. Um, they're normally offered through um, very formal letters written on headed notepaper, and the, 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 the names on the headed notepaper are normally those of major auction houses. <laughs> and rarely, therefore, do we get um, offered important, significant archives that have, you know, um, monetary value attached to them. N rarely do we get called on them 
uh, uh, offered them without having to pay anything for them. So I was naturally rather sceptical of this uh, call. But that was because I hadn't got to know the person who was at the other end of the telephone, Gordon Bussey. So for the next two years, Gordon became a close collaborator with uh, Jim Bennett and myself in an enterprise which seemed hardly possible when first described. But as I became more fully aware of Gordon's remarkable qualities, I realised not only that it might indeed be possible that the Marconi collection could come to Oxford without us having to pay a penny for it, but that with Gordon involved, it was practically a certainty. The qualities that marked Gordon out for me during this period were those of intelligence, commitment, determination, and a strong, unswerving sense of what was the right course of action. I realised that we were working with a real force of nature, someone whose passion for history in general and for the history of radio and television technology was compelling, and whose drive to achieve what he felt was the morally correct outcome was unstoppable. Gordon knew that the obstacles would be considerable, that there would be opposition to the proposal from some quarters, and he also knew, partly because I kept telling him, that the financial resources would be necessary in order to conserve and to process the archive. But none of these issues were serious enough to stop Gordon. He was able to broker conversations with senior people in what was left of Marconi at that point. He was also able to deploy his formidable network to put us in touch with senior figures from Marconi's glorious past to mobilise support for the scheme. And seemingly from nowhere, he was able to produce, with the aid of Rod Berman and others, a significant sum of money, in the end over £300,000, to support the Bodleian and the Museum of the History of Science in bringing the archive to Oxford, ensuring that the archive was catalogued, conserved and made available online, and that a major exhibition was staged at the Museum of the History of Science, and finally, that the fellowship that we are here today to celebrate could be endowed in perpetuity. Collections of the importance and indeed of the size of the Marconi archive only arrive in the life of a librarian, archivist or curator once or twice in their careers. The Bodleian and the Museum of the History of Science was extremely lucky to have Gordon Bussey working on our behalf. Without him, the collection would probably have been dispersed and sold to private collectors around the world and to the book trade, and the fellowship would never have been conceived of. The Marconi Archive and the endowment of the Douglas Byrne Marconi Fellowship were two major achievements towards the end of Gordon's career, but they were by no means his only contributions to the fields to which he was devoted. For much of his life, he worked at a senior level in the electronics industry, but during the 1970s, he became immersed in the history of the industry that he was employed in, becoming an early member of the British Vintage Wireless Society and the historical advisor to Philips Electronics UK. Gordon was convinced of the popular appeal of the history of science and technology and became closely involved in a number of major exhibitions, such as the Great Optical Illusion at the Science Museum and Television, the first 50 years, of the National Museum of Film, Photography and Television at Bradford. He also authored many books from <coughs> Vintage Crystal Sets, 1976, to Marconi's Atlantic Leap, 2000. And arguably, his most in influential work was The Set Makers, published in 1991. 
By the early 1990s, Gordon had become the historical consultant to GEC Marconi and had also established the Wireless Preservation Society with Rod Berman and Douglas Byrne. In 1997, Marconi decided to sell its archive and collection of objects at auction, but they had reckoned without Gordon's moral indignation and steely determination, and the company backed down in the face of public outrage. The company's financial difficulties prompted an even greater risk to the survival integrity of the collection about, ten, uh, about uh, uh, seven years later. And it was this situation that prompted Gordon to strategize about the future of the collection and to contact me in Oxford. Oxford counts itself very fortunate that Gordon Bussey thought that we might be an institution interested and capable of bringing the deal off. Without him, I doubt that we would even have considered it possible, and I'm sure that we wouldn't have been able to raise the financial resources necessary to make it accessible so quickly after accession. More pertinent for this evening, Gordon's drive and energy also made it possible to endow the Douglas Byrne Marconi Fellowship that it is our great pleasure to celebrate this evening, although, of course, it is with great sadness that Gordon couldn't be here to enjoy it with us. The fellowship has, has been designed to enable scholars from outside of Oxford to study the broad field of the history of wireless communication and, where possible, to use the Marconi object, uh, archive in the Bodleian and the objects in the Museum of the History of Science and in return for funds to support their research, they are asked to contribute back to the research culture of this university in the form of this lecture. I'm therefore delighted and very pleased to introduce the first Douglas Byrne Marconi Fellow, Peter Scott. Peter is Professor of International Business History in the Department of Management at the Henley Business School in the University of Reading and Director of the Centre for International Business History there. He has published widely on the history of different sectors of British business between the wars, including coal mining, banking, and even the door-to-door -door sales of vacuum cleaners. He is the first Douglas Byrne Marconi Fellow, and it is my pleasure to invite him to deliver the first Douglas Byrne Marconi Lecture. Peter. Thank you, Richard. It was a great pleasure to work with Gordon Bussey as the first Douglas Byrne Marconi Fellow. In addition to rescuing the Marconi archive, which is well known, Gordon also played a key role in rescuing key papers for Pi Mullard, together with arranging for two major ephemera collections to be preserved in Oxford. And I think it's fair to say that without his initiative, the sort of archivally based research which I do wouldn't have been possible for the radio sector in the way that it is. What I want to do in this lecture is to look at the early development of the commercial radio industry during the 1920s and 1930s and explain why the industry adopted the structure which eventually emerged by the late 1930s. So first of all, I guess I don't really need to tell this audience why we should be interested in radio. Radio played a pivotal role in the early development of the British and international electronics industry. The radio was the first electronic or even electrical good to become ubiquitous in households for the upper, middle and working classes. It had a very fast diffusion rate. It diffused even more quickly than mains electricity. 
It's also one of the first complex assembly industries. Among economic and business historians, a huge amount of work has been done looking at the motor vehicle industry. Complex assembly using chassis. But the other industry which pioneered complex assembly using chassis radio has hardly been looked at by the economic history journals. Key features of the British industry, it was seen as particularly successful in terms of technology, design and quality, as I'll go on to talk about today. But the other factor which differentiated it from its main rivals is British radios were relatively expensive. The British radios cost a lot for what you were getting compared to their rivals. And those are two key features that I want to explore in this lecture. So why were British radios expensive? One of the key factors was Marconi's success in getting a large payment for its royalties, particularly during the 1920s. And there was a complex interaction between Marconi's ability to gain payments for its monopoly position in royalties and the BVA cartel of valve manufacturers, who also adopted on a peculiar technological path, which was directly the result of the Marconi royalty system. Now, Marconi had a huge advantage over other manufacturers in radio production. It didn't have to pay royalties, which by the late 1920s amounted to more than 20% of the factory cost of a radio. Other members of the big six electrical engineering firms which founded the British Broadcasting Company in 1922 again had a big advantage. They paid ro lower royalties. And the valve manufacturers, again, because there was such a big markup on valves, again had a huge cost advantage. So you might expect that either Marconi or other members of the big six or the valve manufacturers cartel may have become the dominant players in the British radio industry by the 1930s. This didn't happen. Independent sub makers such as Pi, Echo, Bush, Murphy kept a strong position in the industry. And that is essentially what this talk is about. So this paper, I'm afraid the headings are in red, which doesn't show up very well on these slides. First of all, examines how the independent said makers survived and prospered, despite an industry with a cost structure which worked against them. Secondly, it explores the nature of monopoly rents in the sector. And finally, it highlights the roles of marketing, design and developing innovative relationships with retailers in competitive success in allowing firms like Murphy, Echo and Pi to succeed despite the fact that they were at a cost disadvantage and then get into a position where they could actually drive very hard bargains with the patent providers and the valve manufacturers. So that essentially is what I'm going to talk about. If anybody has any questions, 
I'd be, which for a particular part, I'd be happy to answer. But don't ask me anything about the technical workings of a radio, because unfortunately, I probably wouldn't give you a very good answer. So first of all, the growth of the interwar radio industry. One key feature is very rapid diffusion of radios. Radios diffuse among households in Britain as rapidly as anywhere in the world. Here we've got a graph of the number of households, the proportion of households with radios between 1922 and 1939. The black line is the UK, the brown line is the USA. And what the graph shows is that in the 1920s, Britain did relatively well. It falls back behind the US in the 1930s. It catches up in the late 1930s. However, there's a problem with these figures. The American data is based on radio sold. The British data is based on licenses. And even back in the 1920s, 1930s, not all British households were fine, upstanding citizens who paid their licenses. So I've managed to find a few estimates of the radio ownership rather than just licenses. And these white dots show the figures. And actually, in Britain, according to these surveys, radios diffuse very quickly. This one's a ballpark figure. This one we don't know much about, but this one is based on 9,000 households, a big market research survey covering all regions of Britain. So on the basis of the data, it seems that British radios diffused faster even in the USA. The reason being that in some American states in the South, radio was actually quite poorly developed. <coughs> so diffusion rates were quite rapid. Sorry, I'm getting beyond myself. Consumers' expenditure in radio in 1938 amounted to £2.18 shillings per household. And this was a time when a skilled working man might have a household income of about £4 a week. So you're looking at half a week's income spent on radio per household. The industry is highly concentrated. If we go to the slide, which I fl this slide shows in 1935, the output per head for factories, these are factories rather than firms, of radios of different sizes. So we start off with factories 11 to 24 workers. These are from the 1935 census of production. So it doesn't include factories of 10 or fewer workers and 1,000 plus workers. The blue line shows the number of workers in factories of each size. And that's on this scale here. So most workers are in factories of 1,000-plus employees. About two-thirds of all radio industry workers are in these big factories, which is quite unusual for Britain at this time. This is a very concentrated industry. But when you look at output per head, it's actually only slightly above the average for the industry, £216 per worker. The industry average is only 211 so we get an industry where employment is very concentrated in big plants, but output per worker doesn't seem to be much bigger. 
So that's one of the things I wanted to explain. Why do we have these big plants when they're not actually much more productive? And one of the reasons why productivity was quite poor, productivity in radio is actually well below the average for electrical engineering. And it's also below the average for all manufactured industries in Britain in 1935. And one of the reasons we're dealing with a very seasonal industry. And again, I can illustrate that. I have another graph. Oh, by the way, this graph is just to show in America you get the same thing. I skipped through this one. Again, in America, the employment is concentrated in very big plants. However, the very big plants, they're only 10% more productive than the average. So it's not peculiar to Britain. And this graph, I think this is the first time anybody's done this. It looks an average of 1933 to 1934, the monthly output of the radio industry. And what I used to measure this is valves produced by members of the British Valve Asso Manufacturers Association, the BVA. And the blue line is the valves which are actually used by BVA members to produce sets. Many of them were integrated producers. They produce the valves, they also produce the sets. So the blue line is large manufacturers. The red line is the ones which are sold to the radio trade. So they go into independent manufacturer sets. So these capture more of the small firms. The green line is the ones who are sold to consumers as replacements. But we see particularly for the ones that go into sets, a very strong cycle. Between January and June, all the, the radios produced on this measure make up only a quarter of annual output. Then you get this big takeoff following the Radio Olympia show in late August. But production is changing very quickly, so it's very difficult to be able to use mechanised production. What they do instead is they hire and fire workers. They take on a large amount of generally young female workers in the autumn, and then they fire them in the new year. Now, obviously, doing this, you want to have fairly unmechanized techniques because you can fire workers, you can't fire machinery. The machinery still stands there idle, costing money. So what we tend to see is this type of production. We've got moving conveyor belts. This is for the British subsidiary of Philco. So it's a company which knows about how to produce mechanised radios. But we see lines of women doing the assembly by hand, but with moving production lines. So essentially that's why productivity was poor, because the industry was so cyclical. Now, we're going to start off in the 1920s, having just gone through an overview of the conditions of the industry. As you know, six big electrical engineering firms formed the BBC in December 1922. These include Marconi, British Thomson Houston, GEC, Metropolitan Vickers, Western Electric, and the Radio Communication Corporation. And Marconi has a monopoly on the fundamental UK radio patents. It's bought out British Thompson Houston's radio rights, and it's done deals with Telefunken, RCA, and the other international patent holders. 
So it owns all the key fundamental patents. It's impossible to make a valve radio without Marconi's patents. And what it does is it issues a general license, payable if any of its 13 patents are used. So radio manufacturers can't pick and choose. They either buy all of the patents or none of them. And this is levied at two, 12 shillings, 6 pence per valve holder. Marconi realises that radio manufacturers might sell radio sets without valves. So rather than putting the levy on the valves, it puts them on the things which hold the valves. And this is quite a high levy. If you had a five-valve radio, you would be paying the equivalent of a week's wages for a semi-skilled worker just on the royalties. The big six are given preferential terms, but this is kept secret. It only comes out in the Brownie legal case in 1928. So Marconi is being very clever in terms of maximising returns to its patent pool. And what I found quite late on with this is actually economists had actually looked at the economics of this situation. Back in the 1970s, a series of articles in the Journal of Political Economy had actually looked what would happen if you have the monopoly supply of an intermediate product, a product used by other companies, in a market which the product is, could be substituted by competitive products. And the assemblers are actually competitive among themselves. Now, the key thing is the assemblers could use the input, in this case, the patents, in variable proportions with other inputs. In other words, they could use some of the monopoly inputs, the patents, and some other inputs which don't have monopoly costs. And theory suggests that the monopolist will integrate downstream. They will actually integrate the control of the input and the assembly. However, this isn't necessary if they can force the assemblers to use their good in proportions that they fix. And that is essentially what Marconi did. They made the radio manufacturers pay for all the patents, so the radio manufacturers had to use them all, and therefore probably would use them all. And Marconi turned out to be very wise in doing this. There is a big failure of the big six, including Marconi, to produce radios. Apart from GEC, none of them had any strong background in consumer products. And it turned out they couldn't keep pace with the industry because of frequent design changes, new technology, which made radios very quickly obsolescent. It wasn't like, say, producing an electrical generator. One year's radios made the other ones obsolescent. And Marconi Fund, the subsidiary that Marconi established in 1923, runs into huge losses. These are well documented in the Marconi archive. In 1923, they run up a loss, I think it was £184,000, which is a huge figure by 1923 figures. Basically, they've got warehouses full of components, and by the time the components arrive, they're already obsolete. Radio's moved on. And they can't even get around to cancelling the orders because the, even though they're actually ordering from another branch of Marconi. So PricewaterhouseCooper writes a report about this for Marconi in 1927, 
And even in their polite language, it's fairly clear that this is a disaster. But the same thing is happening at British Thompson Houston Metropolitan Vicars, Hot Point. And by the end of the 1930s, all of them have stopped producing radio sets, apart from GEC. They simply couldn't cope with the logistics. Interestingly enough, exactly the same thing happens in America. In America, RCA wants to keep the monopoly to itself. It markets radios produced by General Electric and I think it's and one other company, I think it's West, Western, in fixed proportions. And it doesn't want to license anybody else. But a few manufacturers have got hold of experimental licenses issued by Armstrong before he joins the patent pool. And they beat RCA to the market both on price and on quality. So integration doesn't seem to work either. The thing which does work is Marconi's licensing, which proves very profitable. Marconi had a policy of granting licenses to all British firms who agreed to follow its conditions. It aimed to avoid substitution, as I said, away from its patents via a general license. As the royalty is fixed in money terms per valve holder, as radio prices fall in the 1920s, Marconi is getting a bigger and bigger share of the radio market. And man manufacturers are increasingly unhappy. I've got some figures here which I've taken from Gordon Buss's book, Wireless, A Crucial Decade. And Gordon went through the various list prices and put figures together for 1924, 1926 and 1928 for radios by numbers of valves. So this is the number of valves, these are the prices. And what I've done is work out the proportion of the price which would be made up by royalties as a proportion of the entire price, assuming the firm pays the standard royalties. And the figures which are highlighted are the most common types of radios produced in each year. So in 1926, two valve radios were most common. 1928, for ordinary radios, it was three valves. For portables, it was five valves. I'm missing out the new mains radios because I couldn't fit them on the graph and make it easily re readable. But as you can see, the proportions increase. And bear in mind, these figures are retail prices and their prices which include all the accessories, the valves, the speakers, etc. If you were to put them in terms of factory gate prices for radios, you're looking in excess of 20% of the manufacturer's earnings from the radio goes just to pay the royalties by 1928. So Marconi's got a very successful arrangement. Blaming it for doing this is rather like blaming a giraffe for having a long neck. It's a sensible thing to do. And here we see the earnings of the Marconi pool. Again, this is something I found in the Marconi archive. I think this is the first time the data's been, looked, been actually put together. And big increase with the introduction of broadcasting. You get a peak in 1927, then it begins to fall. It doesn't fall because there's a problem with radio production. It falls because the manufacturers are no longer willing to pay. And we get the Brownie case in 1928. This is a test case which is pushed by the Radio Manufacturers Association. They find a very good case. Brownie is producing a radio 
which would retail for 25 shillings, if it has to pay the Marconi royalty, that would actually double the price. So this is an extreme case. And some Marconi Brownie radios don't need valves, but Marconi's insisting they pay, valve, they pay royalties on all their radios, whether they use valves or not. Again, trying to, to impose the fixed proportionate use of its royalties by all the cu customers. And Brownie appealed to the controller of patents. And the controller of patents finds in favour of Brownie the royalties are too high, but he allows the general licence to be retained. Now this, then the case goes to the High Court. Now in America, the Radio Corporation of America find a big difficulty in keeping their monopoly on royalties. The American legal system has been strongly influenced by the interests of manufacturers and consumers. And these interests push for action against monopolies with the Sherman Antitrust Act, the Clayton Act. It's very difficult to keep a monopoly. It's reflected both in formal action against monopolies and in the judgment of the courts. In Britain, you have a very strong liberal conservative political philosophy. And liberal conservatism, as Nigel Harris wrote in his excellent book, Competition in the Corporate Society, is designed to protect the individual. But this is a very peculiar type of individual. It's an individual with lots of money. And the idea of liberal conservatism is to protect that individual's money from being taken away by the state or anybody else who might want to acquire it. Again, in a country dominated by financial and mercantile interests, this has an economic logic. So the High Court finds that Marconi is entitled to monopoly rights from the ownership of its intellectual property. So it supports the Marconi case. And again, a key difference between what happened in Britain and what happened in America. However, there's another impact on British said design. The said makers are clever, and they realise, what if you could produce a valve which does several things in the same valve? This would mean you wouldn't have to pay the royalties. So they go to the said valve manufacturers, who are a very tight cartel. They develop valve manufacturing developed from lamp manufacturing which was already a very tight international cartel. And prices are strictly controlled. They have agreements, so there's no price competition. And the valve manufacturers are very keen on developing these new, more complex valves, because it means they can compete with each other. So the valve manufacturers start producing multi-use valves. So you've got two or three functions within one valve. This also allows them to increase brand differentiation and limit the interchangeability of valves between different producers. And it weakens the risk of market entry by new valve producers because these new multi-use valves are very, very complex to make, very difficult to make. Even Philips, who's one of the most successful firms, has big problems in the 1930s with wastage, because it produces valves which aren't working and it doesn't quite know why. So all of this strengthens their cartel. And the valves are very expensive for the valve, for the said makers to buy. But the said makers don't mind, because they're saving this 12 shillings and sixpence royalty on each valve. So they can afford to pay very high prices for the valve, and they're still in pocket, because the royalties they avoid as greater than the money they're paying.
So let's have a look at the British valve makers, valve manufacturers cartel. The main members by the 1930s were Phillips, who've taken over Mullard in 1926. So I'll refer to Phillips Mullard interchangeably. British Thomson Houston, EMI, AC Cosser, GEC, Ever Ready Listen, and Ferranti. Ferranti has big troubles manufacturing valves at work, even manufacturing radios at work proves quite problematic for it, but that's a different story. And the valve makers impose fixed prices and they have agreements with the distributors, with the retailers, which mean that if any retailer or wholesaler is caught selling an American type valve, which remain much simpler throughout the interwar period and much cheaper and easier to make, they'll be blacklisted by the entire trade. It's a very strong measure of protection. And the three leading said makers in the 1930s are all BVA members. EMI, which basically produces valves for its own use and for retail and for selling to consumers for replacement. Phillips Mullard and AC Cosser. They lead the industry. Yet despite their big cost advantage, and there are huge markups on sales of valves, both to the trade and to consumers, they fail to dominate the industry. And in the early 1930s, EMI and Phillips are convinced there's going to be a period of vigorous competition, and that competition will remove all the independents, and within a few years, there'll be two or three big radio producers, and perhaps a fringe of specialists, and that'll be it. Actually, that doesn't happen. From the late 1920s, when radio sets cease to be pieces of laboratory equipment in terms of appearance, and start to look like modern consumer durables, a number of rapidly growing sales-orientated said makers emerge. Leading examples, Echo, Murphy, Pye, and later Bush. These gain competitive advantages from marketing innovations, principally design, advertising, and innovative relationships with dealers. And their successful marketing strategy then underpins a new strategy of minimizing costs. So having succeeded in developing strong brands and large market share, they're then able to drive costs down because of their strong bargaining position. So let's have a look at some of these key advantages. First of all, design. During the early 1930s, a number of radio manufacturers realized design was going to be important, and design should, of the radio cabinet should be integrated with the design of the overall radio. Design can both appeal to the customer and most importantly can distinguish the brand at a glance. Even a child can recognize an Echo radio or a Murphy radio or a Pi radio. This became increasingly important in the 30s also because the major technical problems of radio, fidelity of reception, sensitivity, selectivity between stations, were largely solved and solved in broadly similar ways. Now, one thing which the US Department of Commerce, who produced a report on the British radio industry for American radio firms in 1934, and Nicholas Pevsner, the leading 
artistic commentator on British design agreed is Britain was at least equal to America in radio design. Firms began to employ the leading British designers and integrate cabinet making and interior design. An early example was the PIMM. As far as I'm aware, the designer's unknown legend has it that the rising sun motif was copied from a cigarette case. But again, a beautiful, compact design. More well-known is the Echo AD65, produced by Wells Coates in 1934. You have an innovation with the chassis actually being on the front rather than the bottom. And this is a radio which was probably the most revolutionary design to that time, but it was also one of the best-selling radios of the 1930s. So we've got design which is both cutting edge and is extremely popular in the market. Although Echo were quite pragmatic, they were happy to make it in brown as well, so it would look more like a conventional radio. And then we've got Murphy. Murphy turns to a leading furniture designer, Gordon Russell, who gets his brother Dick Russell to design radios which are not everybody's cup of tea. But again, Murphy's line is we like these radios because you'll either love them or hate them. They're a bit like Marmite in a sense. And the key thing is as long as a certain number of people love them, then we're quite happy. In fact, Murphy actually has this conversation with the public in one of his conversational adverts. The longer you look at them, the more you're going to like them. So design was a key thing, and I think it's fair to say the independents tended to lead in design. Another key area where they were quite successful is advertising. Radio manufacturers spent a lot on advertising. Advertising expenditure was equal to 9% of factory gate prices for radios. And that was more than twice the ratio of advertising to turnover for most household consumer goods. What I've done for this study is I've looked at 211 press adverts from the 1930s. And I tried to look at the key, uh, the main appeal of each advert. Obviously, some adverts have several appeals. Encoded it under various headings. And I also bagged this up by looking at the brochures for several of the leading firms where they're available. I used the John Johnson collection. I used the Bellic collection, which has just been taken in by the Bodleian. And I also used the National Art Library of Art, the V&A's collection of brochures, which were collected by Echo and then sold to the V&A. And most adverts emphasize product characteristics. This was the typical approach. The advertising press attacked this approach. They said the adverts were boring, undifferentiated. But just because it didn't go down well with the advertisers doesn't mean it necessarily didn't work. Philips, Pi, HMV adopt a different strategy. What they try and do is to push the strength of the brand. They have simple, direct slogans, such as tomorrow's radio today for Philips or the greatest modern radio for Pi. Big illustrations of the radio really trying to push the general appeal of the brand, not so much on the specific characteristics. Colster Branders, which is a subsidiary of standard telegraph and cables, telephone and cables, an American company, uses price leadership. Colster Branders is able to get access to American valves, and the trade allow it because Colster Branders is more or less in the club. And because of that, they can offer lower prices, so it always stresses that its radios are cheap. 
But the really distinctive approach is an approach developed by Murphy in the early 1930s and then copied by Bush and RGD, conversational ads. And this is a really big innovation in advertising that the radio industry produced. This is a classic example. Frank Murphy, who had a background in advertising before he came into radio, together with his advertising agency, came up with this idea of having a series of conversations with the public. And the conversations were generally fairly soft sell. They talked about different characteristics. The key thing was they were produced every two weeks throughout most of the year, and the idea was that people would read them because they were always different. They didn't really try and push the brand in a single advert. One of them actually talked about the fact that Murphy was usually seen smoking a pipe. People wrote in to complain. One of the ads just talked about the pros and cons of appearing with a pipe. But the idea was to build up public trust by making people think that they were an insider in Murphy's universe. To take Murphy's views on radio, Murphy was probably one of the most visionary thinkers in the radio industry in the 1930s, and get a rapport with the public. Again, I could say a lot about this advertising campaign, but I've got to move on. The next area of innovation is innovations in distribution. Radios were traditionally distributed via wholesalers. The trade would come and see new radios at the Radio Olympia exhibition and various regional exhibitions in August, September. Then they would buy via wholesalers, so the manufacturers would have no direct contact with retailers. Then in October 1930, Thrang Murphy introduces a limited dealer scheme. He says he will only supply to authorised retailers and he will supply them directly. The wholesalers are up in arms about this. They want to drive Murphy out of business. But it works quite well. Murphy is unable to use this to turn to the dealers and say, we're in a depression, this is about 1932. I want you to take 25% margin rather than 33% margin. Eventually, they settle on 27.5%. And several other major firms, including Pi, follow this. In 1933, they introduce their own direct-to-dealer schemes. They deal directly with the retailer, and they bring margins down to 27.5%. And having good links with retailers is another key competitive advantage of the leading independent set makers. What do dealers want? First of all, they want high-profile, reliable brands. Brands which the public already want to buy. So the public already come into the shop wanting that particular brands. The limited dealerships generally stocked only a few brands. So the brands they stocked wanted to be brands which sold. They also want extensive marketing support. Murphy, Pi, Echo, provide cooperative advertising. They help fund some of the dealer advertising. They coordinate advertising campaigns with the dealers. They provide a lot of free display material. So they're actually subsidizing the advertising budget for their retailers. Murphy actually goes a step further and only allows his radios to be sold by one retailer in each major shopping center. They also start producing publicity for the retailers. Murphy's got a journal, the Murphy News. Philco has a similar journal. To try and boost communication with the retailers, to tell them what the firm's up to, and increase 
retailer loyalty. Philco, bringing in American methods, even goes a step further and takes successful dealers who amount enough points through selling enough Philco radios or advertising enough Philco radios on a six-day summer cruise to somewhere like, say, Copenhagen. What exactly got on in these cruises is shrouded in mystery, but they did prove very successful in drawing in the Philco dealers. Now, having developed strong brands and strong market share, the independents are then able to turn to the said manufacturer, to the valve manufacturers and the patent holders, and get better terms. In the early 1930s, between 1929 and 1932, most of the fundamental patents in the industry expire. And the two big valve makers who are selling to the radio trade, to said makers, Philips, Mullard, and BTH, realized they could buy up detail patents and develop their own patent pools. So in 1933, Philips launches its own patent pool. I think BTA launches one about the same time. It's certainly up and running and strong by 1934. And what they do is they offer licenses for patents to independent said makers, together with either partial or full indemnities against prosecution by Mullard. So they indemnify them against litigation in return for contracts which tie all or some of their valve sales to that particular company. So what they're doing, again, is they're combining the patent element with the valve sale element, this time through tied sales, through medium-term contracts running several years, which effectively serve to partially integrate the assemblers into the valve maker. And BTH, according to Philips, was even supplying designs to some small set makers who were effectively assemblers for BTH. Now, Philips realises that this is going to be a problem in competing with BTH. What it wants to do is to be able to offer price discrimination to larger customers. It realises a lot of the smaller companies are going to go out of business. So Eric's, the manager of Mullard's, who was sent over by, from Eindhoven by Philips, wants to introduce a policy of offering cheap prices to the big independent said makers to undercut BTH and expand their valve production so it can drive down the cost of producing Philips radios. The more valves you produce, the lower the unit costs. From 1934, the BVA are forced through pressures from their main members to free sales to said makers from price controls. So sales of valves to consumers are still strictly controlled, but sales of valves to assemblers are now open to bargaining between the two parties. And the independents realize that they're in a strong position, so they drive very good deals, playing off Philips against BTH and vice versa. And also, I mean, in the back of their mind, they could bring in Tungsgrim, which is an Hungarian-based firm producing American tied valves, if they absolutely need to. Although that would involve blacklisting, which would be a big problem for them. 
And a meeting of the BVA in April 1935 notes lament, a lament that the largest cyber makers are beginning to dominate the association rather than being controlled by it. They say, don't these people realize that we're protecting them against foreign competition, that we're controlling the market, and yet they want lower and lower prices? The valve makers become quite upset. Philips then tries to simplify its valve production. It argues BTH are producing these complex valves, they're producing new valves very frequently. This is just too expensive. So they begin to move back towards American type valves, a simpler, cheaper, less complicated range. They don't go all the way, but they at least begin to go along that path to be able to undercut BTH on price. And companies like Echo and Murphy begin to negotiate ever more favorable deals. Echo even begins to produce its own valves from 1936, not because it wants to produce them as a way of supplying itself, but to put further pressure on the valve makers. And in 1939, they eventually forced Mullard to offer them a really good contract and buy all their valve making equipment at a price which covers all their costs. So now the valve manufacturers are actually losing their market strength and the key people are the said makers. So in 1938, the three major valve manufacturers, EMI, Philips Mullard and AC Cossa, comprise over a third of all receiver sales. So they're actually the strongest players in the market. Yet four of the eight firms, each with 5% or more of the market, are independents. Murphy, Bush, Echo and Pine. More importantly, non-BVA members collectively account for the majority of valve production. And the only figures I've been able to find for market share come from 1938. These are figures put together by the British Val by the Radio Manufacturers Association. We see EMI's got 14.1% market share, Philips Mullard Cossa, but then we start getting the independents. There's one or two valve makers which are in lower positions. But the key thing is, the independents have actually strengthened their position in the late 1930s compared to the mid-1930s. In 1935, a BVA meeting claims that they have 60% of the whole market. By this time, they only have about 45%. So the independents are actually gaining market share compared to the integrated manufacturers. So to conclude, the failure of the big six or the valve makers to dominate the industry shows the complexity of the factors determining competitive success. Essentially, logistics are a big thing in this industry. It's not like previous electrical inventions where you can produce for long periods to stock. Radios are introduced new models every year and radios become rapidly obsolete. You can't tell in advance if a model is going to be successful or not. The only thing which will prove success is the market. Firms talk about how difficult it is to predict if a radio is going to be successful. So being lean, being versatile, being able to react quickly to the market is quite important. The old-fashioned electrical manufacturers, people like Metropolitan Vickers, Marconi, simply can't keep with the pace. The valve makers do a lot better. 
but they failed to achieve their goal of dominating the market. EMI, Philips Mullard, won market domination in the early 1930s. They don't manage to get it. The independents develop high sales volumes and they thus lower input costs. So essentially, what we've got is a model where success in marketing can actually lead to success in cost minimizing. If we go back to the graph where we see the big plants are the ones where the industry is concentrated. Most production takes place in big plants, but they're not particularly productive. The answer is there are economies of scale in the industry, but the economies of scale come from marketing, distribution, and reducing input costs rather than through production. So that's what I found. I'll be very interested in your questions. Thanks very much.